there's all kinds of things that are taken into account when they're, when they're determining the function of an herb. And just to be accurate, I think we should also be honest, which is that there are many herbs that the saper was assigned after the function was determined. In other words, the saper was assigned to remind you what the function was. They said, okay, we're going to call this sweet because we know it supplements, because we've been using it for, you know, for 500 years anyway, and it's always been supplementing. So it goes both directions, and there's a lot of factors that contribute to the, uh, you know, the function of an herb. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. I saw an ad that said, write blog posts 10 times faster with robots. It made me sad, and then it made me angry. It made me angry because there are certain things that especially define us as humans. Language, connection, the capacity to see something of the world and to share it with another. There's something sacred about words. No, it's not the words. It's the long song of human experience that comes through them. Offloading the process to machines, mm, call me a Luddite, there's something wrong about it. There's something, I want to call it cheating. Cheating in that you're attempting to connect in a human way, but gaming the system. And what might be even worse is that we are so easily gamed. Machine copy for most people is not indistinguishable from that written by a human. It's like with medicine, we give our bodies and being over to tests and metrics and call it health. But is it health? At this point, artificial intelligence reads radiological films better than a person. So perhaps, yes, there is a place for applying AI. Perhaps I'm old-fashioned or better said behind the times. Maybe I'm sad that us Humans are so predictable that for 80 plus percent of life, we are living road enough that our machines can outhuman a human. I wonder if offloading that 80% of human drudgery to machines will allow us to better use the remaining 20% for something that's uniquely and brilliantly human. Or does it mean that we lose the capacity for our brilliance, that the troubles are part of the recipe, that the difficulties and the travails are necessary. Without the alchemical firing off of the dross of transforming the impure, there is no rarefied elixir. Machines can mimic humans, but mimicry is not authenticity. Where do you draw the line? These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. 
And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I've got a friend who used to make flavors for ice cream. Every kid's dream job, isn't it? He said that one of the most important steps in creating a great ice cream was the organoleptic testing. In other words, tasting the ice cream for yourself. Perhaps theory, science, and AI can get us in the ballpark of a great ice cream, but tasting it, how it feels in the mouth, the way the fragrance lingers in the back of the throat and tickles the sinuses, that is a job for human beings. Today's panel discussion mulls over the flavor, taste, and nature of herbs as a foundation for understanding herbs and how to use them in clinic. This started out as a three-person panel between Lauren Seitler, Boris Berdansky, and Simon Fianney, but it turns out that Simon, who lives in Australia, was visiting the States and recording from Frank Griffo's office, and Andy Ellis happened to be there as well. 
I believe in grabbing a hold of synchronistic opportunities whenever they arise. And so I invited them to this discussion. What we ended up with? Well, listen in and find out for yourself. If you're at all interested in herbs, you're in for a treat. Let's get into this. Hey friends, welcome back to Geological. I've got a really special show for you today. Well, I thought I was going to have three herbalists, three gentlemen. Sounds like an herbal formula, doesn't it? But it turns out there's five of us on the line today. And we're here to talk about something very unique to our particular kind of medicine, which is flavor-based medicine. A lot of times people look at herbs through the scope of modern science and all the things that are in it. But, you know, if you're working traditionally, like really traditionally, you're looking at flavor and taste and direction and all those kinds of things. I'm going to have each of these guys introduce themselves quickly. And then we're going to have Lauren kick this off because he was the one that first approached me and said, I'd love to have a conversation about this kind of medicine. And we're going to let him uh, tell us a little bit more. So let's begin with the person who came the furthest to join us today. That is Simon. Yeah. Hi, guys. I did come the furthest and then I ended up being closer. Yeah, I guess that counts as traveling the furthest. So my name's Simon Feeney. I've run a company in Australia called Empirical Health. And we definitely focus on classical formulas and flavor-based medicine, for sure. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast, Michael. Glad to have you. And that gentleman sitting to your right, Simon, the godfather of our herbs, Andy, tell us about yourself. Well, I'm going to assume people already know who I am. So I'm the uh, well-known author of, of numerous books on Chinese medicine, which will remain unnamed, but you can look them up anywhere. And... Uh, I just happened to be here, so I'm happy to participate. And Frank, tell us about yourself. Yeah, I'm Frank Griffo. I'm an acupuncturist in Petaluma, and uh, I run Griffo Botanicals, a tincture company with distribution across the country. Boris. My name is Boris Bernatsky. I'm an acupuncturist and an herbalist in Raleigh, North Carolina. I started studying herbalism back in school like everybody else, but I didn't really start getting the hang of it until I started studying with Andrew and Julianne Nugenhead and their whole approach of uh, flavor and nature-based herbalism, which is sort of what it should be, was sort of mind-blowing for me because it's so different than the way we learned it in school. Then after kind of reviewing some of their stuff, I remembered, oh, we did kind of maybe learn this for one hour back in school. Anyway, I love herbs. I'm not famous. Thanks for having me anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Boris, you're going to be famous now. Lauren. Yeah, my name is Lauren Steidler. I practice traditional Chinese medicine in Los Angeles, California. I'm, I guess, one of the few people outside of the East Asian diaspora to be second generation. My father and stepmother both practiced and practice still. I am a Sinophile, which is kind of what led me to Chinese medicine in the first place. Studied abroad in China, speak Mandarin, use those skills to look at old literature, which is really fun. And uh, also of now a fervent student of Julianne Nugenhead and Andrew Nugenhead, and that's how I got into flavor nature herbalism. Fantastic. Well, Lauren, you originally reached out and said that you'd like to have a conversation about the flavor and nature of herbs. I'm a fan of herbs, too. Like Boris, I remember being in school, and we'd study the flavor and the nature. And we actually focused on it to some degree, but I'm not sure that it really stuck. 
And one of the things that's been interesting in the past handful of years is, is different people from different herbal traditions coming forward with this perspective. So I'd actually like to start with Boris. You know, you, you mentioned that in school that you studied it a bit. Of course, it's, it's in all the books. It'll tell you about the flavor and the nature. But it sounds like something else has really caught your attention with this, and maybe even your capacity to use herbs. I'd like to know a little more about that. So back in school, I was trying to remember my, about my education. And I remember specifically in Herbs 101, before you even started learning individual herbs, we were introduced to the idea of the herbs flavor and what that does to the chi of the body. But beyond that, I don't think it was really emphasized for me in any case. We had this big emphasis on functions and actions and memorizing lists of herbs that calm the fetus or herbs that do this or that. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing because there are great practitioners who are able to do stuff with that. But it wasn't until I got introduced to a flavor in nature herbalism that I realized that, oh, that's where all these functions come from, right? It is the flavor of the herb that does the thing. It does a thing and let's assign a flavor or a nature to it based on the things that the research shows. So in some herbs, it's a lot more subtle. So if you have a bland tasting herb, but you're seeing it has a strong effect, you might assign a different flavor or a nature to it than you can taste. You know, some things you can taste, it's sweet, but some things you don't really taste, but you can tell that, oh, it does a building or a gathering, and so we'll call it sweet. But for example, recently I tasted futsu for the first time as a single herb, decocted, and it didn't have a particularly acrid or spicy flavor. It was relatively mild, but it did have a whole body warming effect. And yet it still has like, it's famously kind of acrid and hot. If I could jump in really quickly, I think Boris is really touching on something important, which is the act of tasting herbs. I think what's really important is we see throughout the history of dynastic Chinese medicine, so medicine, kind of pre-modern Chinese medicine, is that Chinese herbalists will always tell you what the flavor of the herb is. Even if you look at Zhang Zhongjing, the Shanghan Lun, he gives his prescriptions. Each herb name comes with a flavor first, and then it, he always includes the flavor with the herb that he's prescribing, which at a time like the Han Dynasty, when papermaking would have been novel, and much of what was being written was done on either silk screens or bamboo slips, and was incredibly difficult time took a lot of time and was cost, uh, very expensive, costly, then ultimately these doctors were having to, de to determine what is the most important thing I want people to remember. And Zhang Zhongjing wanted people to remember the flavor of the herb before pretty much any other information. So I think saying that what that tells us then is that herbalists before the modern period ascribed an importance to the flavors that we've kind of forgotten today. And we even see references in like the Pi Wei Lun from Li Dongyuan that Li Dongyuan directly tells us that it's the flavor and the qi of the herb or the flavor and the temperature of the herb that gives an herbs its function. So if we're not thinking about that when we're trying to prescribe an herb, we're not thinking the same way our venerated medical ancestors are, which then begs the question, are we really practicing traditional, emphasizing the tradition, Chinese medicine? Thank you. Lauren said that much more eloquently than I could have. But just going back to my school experience uh, for one more second, so when we would be learning the single herbs, teachers would pass them around. Mm -hmm. And most times people would just look at them, but I would always chew on them. So I was already back then very much interested in ingesting the substances to sort of get an idea of what they're like and what they do. I didn't think to decoct them. I didn't realize that, you know, we're going to be prescribing them in an aqueous decoction, not like something you chew on. 
but still I would taste most of the herbs. There was a funny moment actually when we were passing around the harsh expellents and the teacher passed around Bado for everyone to take a look at. And just as it was handed to me, he was like, Boris, don't taste that. <laughs> I remember when I was in school, we did chew on the herbs. It was part of the learning. Look at it, smell it, know how to identify it, chew on it. But I don't think we did not do single decoctions. In hearing you talk about that, your decoction of Futsa, and I'm thinking now with any of them, in its decocted form, it's going to taste different than when you're just chewing on the raw root. For sure. I mean, it's like having a tea or chewing on a tea leaf that's dry. It's totally like one is a completely pleasant experience and the other one, frankly, would suck. Depends. I've, I've eaten some tea leaves before in Taiwan as part of the delicacy there, and, and they can be prepared quite nicely. But yeah, generally speaking, I, I'm quite well taken. Something in its raw form is going to be different than something in its cooked form. Simon, let's, let's move over to you for a moment. Yes. I'm curious to know how you got involved with paying so much attention to flavor and taste. I think my experience is a little bit different because I, I never really saw it any different than that. My experience was a little bit different because I never had a different way of looking at the medicine. I always sort of was exposed to that perspective, that the perspective was that it is a flavor-based medicine. So that was, so I didn't kind of have to unlearn maybe some of that stuff if this is the right way of understanding the medicine. But I think, you know, it's also important to understand that all those herbs, they do change their nature through the way that they're prepared and the way that they're dispensed and the way that they're administered. That actually can change the f entire flavor of the herb. Like peonia is a perfect example. In some texts, because it, it can be quite confusing even in text, you have xiao yao, like chur xiao, bai xiao. It's got bitter flavors. It's got sour flavors, depending on what text you're looking at, depending on the way it's dispensed. If it's in a decoction, it's sour. If it's in a san or a wan, it's bitter. And so that aspect is quite becomes a completely different experience depending on how you take it how you decoct it because peonia when it's it's originally like the baishao is just is originally churchow and as soon as it's boiled so you've got churchow at the start which is bitter and then as soon as it's boiled it's baishao and it's sour so coming from the same although you, it's derived from the same plant so it's preparation it makes a massive difference yeah yeah and you're taking the same herb and you're mixing it with some of the fundamental formulas of chinese medicine and you're adjusting the flavor of the herb depending on how you're preparing it. And we see this to some degree when you read the Materia Medica and uh, you know, they'll talk about different preparations. Mm. You know, bring out different things. And Poucher, of course, is a huge aspect of it. Andy knows a lot about that. He's got Poucher people do the herbs. Andy, I'm curious to know, you know, I know that you did a lot of study in Taiwan, and I'm wondering if some of your early herbal experience there, were they looking at what we're talking about here with flavor and nature? Were they going more with functions from books? How was it taught to you back then? Yeah, I think my first exposure to herbs was I was working with uh, Shu Fu Su, who was my teacher in uh, Taiwan. He had an herb shop, and we would go and purchase herbs, you know, at these suppliers. And so one thing I'd like to bring to this conversation, I think it's really important to try, try to be accurate when we talk about things. And um, so when we talk about the sapor or the, or the flavor of an herb, there's three possibilities that I can think of, and I, I may be missing some, but one would be when you dig that herb out of the, uh, say it's a root, and you dig it out of the earth, 
and then you rinse it off and then you taste it. That's one flavor. If you dry that herb and do whatever powder you're going to do to it, and then you taste that herb, that's a different taste completely. And if you decoct that herb and then you drink the liquid, that's a third taste. So I think we need to decide, if you're going to talk about the function of a herb being related to its savor then, or its taste, then you have to decide which taste are you actually talking about. Is it the raw herb? Is it the herb that uh, has been dried and treated? Or is it the decocted liquid? And I've read arguments about this, Qing Dynasty arguments, where they talk about, no, it's the taste when you first pull it out of the ground, because those people that are looking at it, they're not just, when they're looking at the functions of herb, they're not just looking at this taste. Uh, they're looking at what season does this grow in? What kind of environment does this grow? It grows in the water. Oh, it must be a water herb. And that gives it certain properties. Uh, you know, this one always grows on the south side of the hills. This one always grows on the north side of the hills. This one has a late uh, flowering. It doesn't flower until the fall. This one flowers in the spring. So all those give different properties to the herb. This one has a real upward motion because in the spring it shoots out of the ground. There's all kinds of things that are taken into account when they're, when they're determining the function of an herb. And just to be accurate, I think we should also be honest, in which is that there are many herbs that the safer was assigned after the function was determined. In other words, the sapo was assigned to remind you what the function was. They said, okay, we're going to call this sweet because we know it supplements, because we've been using it for, for 500 years anyway, and it's always been supplementing. So it goes both directions, and there's a lot of factors that contribute to the, uh, you know, the function of an herb, in my experience, from what I've, what I've seen from my teachers. So I hope that that was uh, a useful piece of information. But I just think when we're talking about flavor, if we would say which flavor we're talking about, that would be really useful to people for this discussion. Yeah, but when it comes to the historical record, we can't go back 2,000 years to Shenlong and ask the authors or the compilers of the Shenlong Ben Cao Jing which flavor they were referring to. They list the name, then they give a flavor and a qi or a temperature. And so we're left to kind of infer what it is that they were referring to. Yeah, we can't know for sure. That's for certain. But if we're if we're saying now, if we're taking an herb, we're saying, oh, this herb is bitter. Well, we can taste it in those three different forms and find out where the bitterness is in that. Or if there's any bitterness at all, perhaps there isn't. But maybe it has a downbearing function. And they say, well, it has a downbearing function. We're going to call it bitter so people will be able to remember that it has a downbearing function. That's interesting, though, because one of the ways that sometimes I'll think, if I have an herb that kind of works enigmatically, so for instance, uh, guado is indicated for expanding the chest, opening the chest a little bit, but it's a sweet herb. Whereas I would often probably reach for something pungent like zisuye or zisuzi or something like that to open the chest. So sometimes I'll take something enigmatic like that and go, well, I guess I'm going to use gualo in a person that I need to open the chest, but I need to do in a sweet way. And by a sweet way, what I'm referring to then is what the Huangdi Neijing tells us that sweet does. So I'm still getting the chest opening, which is kind of the empirical effect of gualo, but it's going to be doing it in a way that's moderated by the sweet function that is going to be ascribed to the herb. And the interesting thing would be, to, how did they ever discover that it had that chest opening function because it doesn't seem to be directly related to the saper? And that may have to do with, you know, the flower opened at a certain time of the day and they so they saw it opening up like that and they go, oh my God, I wonder if it would open up the lungs. I'm just guessing. I'm not saying that's the reason. So I think there's, what I'm saying is we have to understand that there's a lot of other functions, that a lot of other criteria that go into determining what is the what is the function of the herb it's not just the saper but i love the i love the way that you talked about it being yeah this is a sweet and that's what so because most most things that are going to open up the lungs are going to be pungent or acrid or whatever word we're using 
that's going to disperse the chi. Well, what if we have a weak patient? We don't want to disperse the chi, but we still want to open up the lungs. Well, good. Yeah, maybe, maybe Gualdo is a much better choice. That's a really good way to think about it. I'm remembering a story that I heard years ago, something about some famous doctor and some troublesome aristocrat's wife or something like that and not being able to give birth and needs to give birth or something. I can't remember the whole story, but the gist of it is you collect the leaves of a particular tree at a particular time and you brew them into a tea. And it turns out it's because, well, the nature of these leaves at this moment in time when they're falling is that they have this downward motion, this gentle downward motion because they're falling. And you make the tea and, you know, of course, it's a good outcome for the patient. An instructive story for us about the function and nature of things. Sometimes just looking at nature, like you were talking about, something burst out of the ground. We say it has an upward motion or it blooms at a certain time and there's, there's that as well. Yeah, I, it's really funny because I, I know a very, that, that same story, but with an entirely different uh, <laughs> point and an entirely different story. But, uh... So I'd like to hear that. because One of the great things about our medicine, I think, is that it's sometimes contradictory. And yes, it could be the same story, but a whole different outcome. So I'd, I'd love to hear your side of that or that version. Yeah, you're right about those stories. I, I've heard the same stories told about like Judan Shi. And then they'll tell the same story about Zhang Jingyue. And I'll say, okay, so which one was it? I have no idea. But uh, so that happens all the time. And I think you're supposed to understand that, that these are really just, they're just prototypes. They're just uh, something that uh, doesn't matter, matter who the doctor was. This is a story for us to learn. But the story I knew was that, um, yes, it was a Judan Shi story. And he went to see someone who was, he was called to a village where someone was pregnant. He had his assistant with him. And when he got to the house, he heard the screams of the, of the woman who was in labor. And he said to the assistant, you go over to that tree over there and you pick the leaves. And then in about 10 minutes, you come in with those. So he went to uh, see her and he realized that the whole reason this person wasn't giving birth was because she was so uptight and she needed to relax. And then uh, he knew all that from the screams he had heard uh, from outside the house. And so then he had this guy come in with the tea and say, because he, even though this woman did not need an herbal decoction, he gave, her the, he gave him this tea and he chose those leaves actually because they had no function at all and they wouldn't do anything. And he wanted to uh, just relax her mind and make her know that yeah, everything is going to be okay. I've got this herbal tea. This will relax you and the baby will come out. That's the story that I heard about uh, Judan Shi. Yeah. So it's a, quite a different lesson. Yeah. Is that the bland flavor gently leaching out? <laughs> I mean, that's your high-level doctor right there. Like, what does this person need? So I want to come back to Boris for a moment. You were talking about in school, you got this first glimpse of the nature and the flavor because it's in the book. I kind of sometimes think the same thing about acupuncture. You know, we learn about, like, the lung channel. In the book, it's called the hand tie-in channel. We often just use the shorthand of lung, but if you think about it as the hand tie-in channel, well, now there's all these other things in your mind that you can consider that might be helpful in looking to help your patients. And so with that in mind, when you're thinking not just about function, but you're thinking about the flavors and tastes, I'm curious to know how your thinking is different. So... Actually, right now, I'm at an interesting point in my practice where I'm actually 
teetering. I'm still automatically thinking about sort of, I guess, TCM eight principle diagnosis and function and like herbal formula choosing that way. But I'm oftentimes hitting a roadblock and I'm currently actively trying to transition to thinking about what effect do I want to have on their chi without trying to diagnose like a, you know, liver chi stagnation. I want to spread the chi in the center, like in which jiao. And then like I'm doing my best right now to sort of start switching my uh, paradigm so that I'm choosing herbs that spread are not heavy or too light. So they kind of go into that middle area and then choosing herbs in combination for that. And if it happens to be a classic formula, or if there's a classic formula with exactly that combination, I'll look at the formulation and then see if there's something inappropriate in there for my patient and modify based on that. Whereas before it would be like pattern matching. We have pattern XYZ, I'm going to use formula XYZ. You know, liver chi stagnation, Xiaoyosan. Oh, there's a little heat, Xiaoyosan, etc. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of Yang Qi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. Yeah, what I hear you talking about is an understanding where an herb goes and how it moves through the system, what it does to the chi. Well, the image that comes to mind is someone who like really knows how to paint mm. and they really know how to mix paints and they know how to look at how light can be represented by different sorts of colors on a canvas. Right, right. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm, tr I'm working towards that because let's say I got decent at doing paint by numbers, but I'm seeing the limitation there. And actually with COVID, one of the big limitations I started seeing was in supply chains because I have a small product that I make. Um, I'm not going to plug it, but uh, I realized making this product that I had issues with supply chains and I had the thought that, oh, if I cannot source Dangwe, Chaihu, et cetera, how will I be able to treat liver chi stagnation using herbs? So that's what made me really kind of refocus on this, what I got introduced to and what I sort of studied, not going too much in depth in, in the past, that I want to really get as flexible as possible understanding the flavor and the nature of different substances so that I can taste the substance that I haven't used before, compare it to what maybe it, it tends to be used for, whether it's like a Western herb, a Native American herb, or a Chinese herb, or a Korean or Japanese, and still be able to get a, you know an 80% decent effect. It might not be the exact same formula that our four 
that our ancestors used, our herbal ancestors. But I'll still be able to taste it, let's say meditate on it, see what it does in my body, and have an, be able to prescribe it and feel comfortable that it'll do something at least positive, if not exactly what I need it to do. So what I started, why I'm putting this effort for myself anyway, is because I really, really want that flexibility to be able to go outside, look around, grab a root there, a twig there, not because that's the only thing that does it, but because that's one of the things that does it. And I know that because it's flavor in nature, not because it's textbook. Does that make sense? Well, it does. Flavor, nature, there's another very important thing that you didn't mention but is inferred, which is your sense of what it's like when you ingest it. You're kind of going shenong on it. What's that like for me? I used to run around in like herbs one, two, and three being like, oh, I'm just going to shenong these herbs. and so I don't need to memorize, which was not true. I needed to memorize because <laughs> nobody, nobody, do. Yeah, nobody <laughs> asked me on my boards, Boris, what did you feel about this herb? They said A, B, C, or D. <laughs> All right, I'm going to get to Simon here in just a second because I want to get his take on this too because he didn't have the same education that we did. Boris, when you do a decoction or you, you, you shen-nong it, I love that, DIY shen-nong, and you should make a t-shirt. How do you attend to like what's happening with your physiology? How do you make sense of the experience of taking that herb? What is it that you're paying attention to? So first thing, I'm looking at dosages. When I'm tasting a single herb, I tend to go kind of dose high mm. or at least on the middle to high end of what I might recommend for a patient just because I realize I'm not going to be giving this by itself. So I don't. To backtrack a little bit, obviously some herbs you dose low because they'll do something else if you dose high. But I'll choose a decent dose, 20 to 30 grams. I'll decoct it. I'll try to take it on an empty stomach. First, I'll savor it in my mouth. So one of the things I actually I have a hobby of is drinking Chinese teas. So I'll use those kinds of skills. So I'll smell it, see how it changes as it cools down, just smell-wise. I'll taste it. I'll allow the water to dry in my mouth, see how the aftertaste, what happens with the aftertaste, see what flavor comes up when I exhale, see what goes up into my nose. Does anything go up into my nose? Do I feel like a, a different temperature change? Do I suddenly feel cold or hot? Is my stomach suddenly gurgling? With bansha, I wasn't expecting this, but I had a really profound like settling effect as though I just meditated for 30 minutes, but it was just within like five minutes of taking like a decent dose of bansha. And later, actually just recently, I was uh, reading A Walk Along the Riverside. And one of the comments on bansha was that it's very strongly settling to the spirit. And I was like, oh, I literally felt that. And I think Lauren and I were talking about it when I tasted it. We were like, just I was on the phone afterwards chatting about it. So it's just like that, just like drinking tea. So pay attention. And I try not to have too full of a stomach so there's not too many things interacting. Sometimes maybe that's a good thing to see what it would feel like on top of a bunch of food. Does it actually help with food stagnation? Maybe, maybe not. Simon, I'd like to get your thoughts and experience on understanding herbs through the taste. Could you, what can you share with us about that? Because you've kind of shenonged it as well. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's a, it's a fun experience. Like I see this, understand this uh, shenonging experience. And I love it. I definitely think you should make T-shirts out of it for sure. Unfortunately, you can't shenong any tests, which is definitely a shame. But I had that experience with my teacher. So I studied with a Buddhist monk for about 15 years. And that's what he used to say to me. So in order to teach me 
some of these Buddhist lessons. So I, my informal training was even informal within the, my Theravadan training. So I was a temple boy for 15 years. And in that training, my teacher would teach me the Buddhist literature through actual living the practices. So he would say things like there's a famous Buddhist story where the where the medicine one of the medicine Buddhists comes comes to the Buddha and says, How am I supposed to know about medicine? And he says, Well, you taste the plants and if you can't, you know, go out to go to the forest, if you can't taste the plant, meditate on it, you can't understand what it does to another person, then come back and ask me. And of course, he returned many years later and said, I understand everything because I've meditated and I've understand that understood that by experiencing it. And so my teacher would take me outside and he would say eat that and eat this and eat this and eat that and yeah so I learned very much from uh, yeah about having that experience it can be good and it can be bad I've had experience when I took that same principle and applied it to Chinese medicine I was interested in futsa as we all experiment with and uh, yeah unfortunately it put me in hospital my appendix exploded I had peritonitis and I got gangrene on my liver and I was about, yeah, very, very close to dying. A six-hour surgery to clean up. That wasn't very good. So that was a good experience, and I can use that experience to help, help other people in the sense that the reason I think I had that experience was because I did it in isolation. So I didn't do it in conjunction with proper powder, in conjunction with proper combining it with the correct herbs. I took it in isolation and I had too much of one flavor or too much of what, you know, a concentrate. And that's, that's the beauty of Chinese medicine. It's this formula architecture. There's all these flavor dynamics that are happening, happening simultaneously. You know, you have flavor, chi and signature all intertwined in these incredible, really artistic uh, creations. That was some of my experience in... Sorry, can I just ask a clarifying question there? Yeah. Did you like pull the root out of the ground or did you just... And what dosage did you take? How long? Because, you know, just if there are people listening, so they're not completely terrified. I dug it out with my teeth. I, I refused to use my hands. So I did no, <laughs> no, as pure futsa as you could get in the sense that it was just, it was processed futsa, but it wasn't cooked futsa. You know, it was the highest concentrate. I won't say where I came from or anything like that, but I just... It wasn't from you. <laughs> it was from someone else. And so, yeah, it was the highest concentration footer I could find at the time, and I used it just in isolation. I mean, Simon, that's really fascinating, especially because with Fuzi, that Shandong can classify that as being a xiapin, like an attacking method herb that you, I guess, presumably aren't supposed to be taking for a very long time anyway. So the assumption or presumption there is going to be that that it has a very forceful or ferocious chi and a very forceful and ferocious flavor. So given in the wrong context can be particularly hazardous. Yes, very much so. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the, the way that it works in the small intestine, once it, by the time it got to the end of my small intestine, it was pretty much as concentrated as you could get. And then, yeah. Well, there's a cautionary tale. And we also have to remember that uh, Shindong himself exited because of poisoning. So kids, be careful when you're doing this at home. Lauren, what about you? Are you, and actually I want to hear from Lauren and then, and then Frank, I want to ask you a, a few questions about flavors because you've got some products that you make and, and they're actually quite flavorful. So we're going to get to that in a moment. But Lauren, I'd like to get your sense of understanding the herbs through the tastes yourself. How does that work for you and your system? What's your process? Sure. So at this point now, if I have not tasted an herb, I kind of feel like I don't really understand the herb. 
That being said, I have not tasted every single herb in the pharmacopias, not even every single herb in the Shenlong, which is only 365 versus the Bunsao Gangmu, which has thousands of herbs. And I do still prescribe herbs that I myself have never tasted before. But I always, when I do that, there's always a bit of unsurety because I don't know exactly what that herb does. I mean, I have anecdotes from doctors across history that said this herb goes down, this herb goes up, this herb warms, this one cools. But once I feel it happening in my own body, there's kind of a visceral understanding or there's like a, a practical clinical understanding of the herb that allows me to apply it with greater confidence and maybe greater precision. That being said, I think you actually touched on something very interesting in your question, which is like, well, what do you do? How do you feel it in your own system? And I think what's important is to remember that we're not blank canvases. You know, our physiologies are doing whatever they're doing. And I had a great example of this. I'm, I'm actually a professor at Yosan University in Culver City, which is in Los Angeles. And as I taste herbs, sometimes I include my students in that process. And so I gave maybe five students some baishao. We did 30 grams of baishao together. And with a sipping on 30 grams of baishao got a knot in my stump, in my diaphragm, fullness under the heart. One of my other students developed heartburn. And then if the other students were fine, which was a great example of how each of these herbs are going to affect people where they are at. And so when we see disagreements across time as to the flavor of an herb or an effect of an herb, partially that's going to be maybe because the way somebody experiences an herb within the context of their own body is going to be different from a person who desperately needs it versus a person who doesn't need it at all. So I think... What's really important in getting an understanding of flavor, nature, herbalism is really built about on consensus. So it's those of us interested in this way of practicing, getting together, tasting the herb, deliberating over what it tastes like, what it feels like. And then we can kind of take an average of what people's experiences are and get a better understanding of what an herb does. Um, yeah, Boris? I just wanted to comment on that. A counter argument to what Lauren is saying is that that's what's been done in all the pharmacopias. So why repeat it? And then the counter-counter to that is that the herbs we're tasting now might be very different than herbs from 500 years ago. I mean, if we just look at agriculture in general, if we look at the carrots we have now versus before, things are all bigger and sweeter and produced in en masse much more greatly. So like something that we would go and harvest in the woods is going to have a totally different flavor or potentially could have a totally different flavor than something we grow. Or even like apples, you have, you know, different types of apples will have slightly different types of flavors. One is going to be more sour, one is going to be less sour. And obviously we have to rely on our herb suppliers to source the most appropriate type of herb. But And even still, Dangwe is one that I've tasted a bunch of times because I just personally really like the flavor of it. And every source that I taste it is markedly different. That makes me think that it's going to have a different effect in the body. Like I have... You know, Dangwe that I have from Kamwa, one that I have from some random Chinese pharmacy stuff that I bought from botanical biohacking, from new herbs. And each one of those herbs, even though there's a lot of similarities in the flavor, are really quite profoundly different, both in the smell, the texture, the viscosity of the water, even the color of the water. So I guess that's an important point to think about. Like, why do we bother tasting these herbs to try to rediscover the wheel for ourselves? And that's just to clarify, what is this herb we have in front of us versus, like, is this the same thing that they were talking about? Because if you get, like, a dangwe that's acrid and bitter, and it matches, okay, this is, in this Materia Medica, that was acrid and bitter, they said this, okay, maybe this is what it's going to do. This is the way it's going to function, more or less. But if this tastes completely different, there's nothing in it, or, like, I've had a dangwe that is completely sweet, 
compared to any other Dangwe I've had. And I was thinking, okay, this one's definitely going to nourish, but perhaps it's not going to move blood that well. Yeah, so this makes our work extremely tricky. Herbs are different. They're not like some synthesized thing where they've got a quality control and you're looking for a particular molecule and, and all that kind of thing. In fact, I remember when I was doing some study uh, on the mainland in particular, sometimes the teachers that I was following, the doctors that I was following, they would write, it wasn't just Bai Shao, it was like a certain kind of Bai Shao. It's like from a certain area, the, the Bai Shao. And, you know, because some areas are known for a particular herb and that has got a, a unique character to it. Back to something that Lauren said, and I, and I think this is also important, that herbs given to someone who's, I'm using air quotes here, healthy, are going to have a different effect than herbs given to someone who like really needs that herb, right? There's going to be that. Also, to your point, Boris, about like why bother to do it, and I've got my own opinion on it, which is our medicine is really curious in that it's intensely personal. And like the more that we know about it from the inside, I think the more we're able to help our patients because we don't simply have an intellectual understanding or a book understanding or even clinical experience understanding. But if you, if you have like a personal relationship with an herb, like if you have a personal relationship with a certain point, like you really know how to use that point, I think it changes how we work. Yeah, to just to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but just to kind of echo what you're saying, I believe Sima Qin in the Han histories stated that the first herbalist was a cook. So it was somebody who was making food and noticed that he felt certain ways that when he gave, when he presented meals to people who were ill, that if they ate certain things, they would feel better or feel worse. And that really the first herbalist just evolved out of cooking, which is kind of the most fundamental and personal things that we do. Yes. And to put an underscore on what we call food therapy, I mean, there's a lot more we could probably do with that. <laughs> you know, Simon, it looked like you had something you wanted to say. Yeah, I was just going to mention, I mean, that's kind of the art of it, isn't it? That is the whole art of the clinical practice. You know, it is adapting to, you know, those little variations from different suppliers to different seasons to different years. You know, you'll see really good clinicians. They'll notice one year, the Huang Chi is not as sweet or it's not as bitter or it hasn't got as much sour. To, you know, like I remember this guy sitting to my right, Andy, coming to my warehouse in Australia a number of years ago. And I said to him, oh, we've got this Huang Chi, this organic supplier, this new organic supplier, what do you think? And he ate it and he said to me, oh, Huang Chi should have three flavors. And I was like, oh, okay. And he actually he identified the three flavors, but he said, oh, you're, the sweet flavor, the tone is nice and long in this one. So good Huang Chi should have a nice, long, sweet tone. And I'd never heard anyone talk about a herb having three flavors and how long each tone could be and so when you first taste correct me if i'm wrong andy but when you first taste huang chi it should have a uh, initially should have a bit, very quick bitter taste and then have a long sweet tone and then end with a bit of a sour and so the the and i've been tasting huang chi since that time and noticing this is a good huang chi this is a bad huang chi and then therefore you can adapt that in your clinical practice if you taste the wang tea, you might want to up your dose, you might want to change it around. And that goes for the original art of Chinese medicine, which was we're in a different environment at the moment. But the original art obviously was taking each of those flavors, 
looking at the patient in that particular season and you know particular conditions will be associated with condition the seasons and those those the herbs that are growing in those seasons will be for the conditions that, that you're seeing and therefore but that's just not the case anymore you know so it's much much more complex so it does make the art more complex i find if that makes any sense it does make sense i want to get to frank for just a moment because I know you've got some products, and we're not here to necessarily pitch products, but you've got a lot of experience with, with working with herbs and flavors, and, and your, you have these extracts, which is a little bit unusual, right? A lot of times people take pills or, you know, there's the powders. They've got a certain kind of flavor, but you do these extracts, and I've had your extracts. They're phenomenally flavorful. Um, so I'd like to get your thoughts about how you... You think about the flavor, and more importantly, like how you bring that into these extracts that you make, because you're able to catch something quite unique, in my experience. Yeah, well, that phenomenal flavor works for us and against us as providers, right? We want to grate these flavors and get them into our patients, and the patients don't always want them, um, especially when we're talking about formulas like long dan shag and tong and things like that. It's an interesting conversation we're having here, and I've been really enjoying it. Um, I came to some of these ideas very differently than a lot of the people here. I didn't study in a school of thought or anything like that. In fact, when I started as a student about 20 years ago, I was busy memorizing all these herbs. And the first thing I decided what I didn't need to know was the flavor. I was like, I, I don't care. I don't care what flavor it is. I just need to know the functions and things like that. You know, it's kind of cutting it down to the bare bones. Fast forward into practice, you know, I started my practice preparing traditional songs for patients. I would take raw herbs, grind them up into coarse powders, and then blend them for patients in the clinic into large tea bags that they would cook for 10 to 15 minutes that I enjoyed working with the herbs and I learned a lot about each individual herb doing the processing. The sticky ones versus the dry ones, the ones that would obliterate versus the ones that had a lot of fibers, and then tasting them all in the process as well. And over time, that the significance of the flavors became more and more important to me. And now with this business we have here of, of extracting herbs, the flavor profile becomes very important. Anyone who's had a cup of coffee knows that you can have a delicious cup of coffee and you can have a very bitter, acrid cup of coffee. And part of that is the processing. It's not necessarily the bean, but it's how fine did they grind it, how long did they extract it, and that has a significant impact on the final flavor profile, even though they started with the same ingredient. And so in our processing, we look at that uh, very closely. How fine do we grind the herbs before we extract them? How much alcohol versus how much water? Uh, what kind of temperature? And how long do they sit before they're extracted? And all these become very important. And I check, as we're extracting each batch, I check uh, the flavors as they come out. And I can taste the individual herbs in the early part of the extraction process and other herbs in the later part of the extraction process. Like gugentang. The mahuang comes out very early, and some of the other flavors tend to come out much later. Um, the more water-soluble flavors come out later, the polysaccharides and things like that. And polysaccharides are nice because we can actually see them come out in the extraction because they're kind of gelatinous, and they always come out in that last 25% of the extraction. So you're kind of doing it like an old cook. How's that soup coming along? 
yeah, we're checking every batch and adjusting things as necessary. And it's a process, you know, I've been working on this extraction method for about 10 years now because I want the most flavorful and the most concentrated extract possible to give my patients and to give other acupuncturist patients. Because a big challenge of our medicine is getting the herbs into our patients. And when I can say, take a teaspoon twice a day, it's really easy. And, you know, we live here in the Bay Area, are surrounded by some of the best food in the world. And I just think our herbs should be the same way. We should start with the top quality ingredients and have the top quality cooking methods to create the best product. I know, Boris, you had something you wanted to say, and then, Lauren, we're going to get to you. Sorry about that. Um, can I pose a question to that super dense window of knowledge over there? <laughs> <laughs> super dense. Yeah. No kidding. A lot of gravity over there in the uh, upper right-hand corner of our screen at the moment. Yeah. So I make a product, and it's like a, a topical balm that I, I sell, and I'm pretty happy with how it works and things like this. However, one of the things that I struggled with when I was creating it was really figuring out which herbs are going to be useful in an oil extraction, and I couldn't find any English-language literature. So I sort of just looked at traditional formulas that were that they would make a gao out of instead of a, a dieta jo, and I chose herbs based on that. But I'm wondering if Simon or, or Frank or Andy can share any resources or anything like that on how we determine what kind of herb is going to extract well into oil for topical use. I know that's sort of a totally different thing, and you can totally cut this if you want to. <laughs> no, no, I think this is... It's hard to find that info. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jing well points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Yes, and, and because there's the herb and the flavor and all the things it does, and then there's the method of delivery, how you get it there. Not a small thing. So yeah, let's hear from, uh, from you guys. Any thoughts? Yeah, well, it's delivery, but it's also the medium in which you're extracting into will determine which ingredients are getting pulled out of the raw herb. So alcohol will pull out alkaloids, like the ephedrine and components like that. Water pulls out polysaccharides um, and oil pulls out its own ingredients, which I'm not too familiar with. This question is probably best fielded with Andy, who's an expert on these things, as well as doing topicals. 
Hmm. I guess that's me. Huh? <laughs> well, actually, you accidentally found the, I think, the very best way to determine which herbs are going to work well in an oil extract. And that's by looking at the old, uh, at the classical literature and seeing which herbs have been used traditionally as in oils, you know, in an oil base. And so the more of those you look at, and there's thousands and thousands of them, I'll let you know, uh, of these formulas. So the more you look, and, and sometimes I'm surprised. I say, oh, I never even thought of putting that herb in an oil, an oil thing. I wonder how that works. And so I think it's got to be those two things. One would be that you look at classical literature and see what people have been using. That'll give you a clue. The second thing would be to experiment. And so that's the, uh, that's, that's the other way to do it. You know, and there's clues. You know, if, you, if you soak something in oil and it changes the color of the oil and the oil starts to take on a different smell, then those are, those are pretty good indications that a lot of stuff's coming out into the oil. If nothing's coming out, then obviously that's not going to work, right? So that's the first thing to do is just take it. If you take, like, for example, you take Zitzal gun, which is either Arnebia or Lithospermum, and you put it into a little oil, within 30 seconds, that whole oil will turn, will turn red. That's one of the chief herbs. I mean, because you only need a little. <laughs> the uh, Huanglian will turn everything very re- yellow fairly quickly. Some things don't, they don't need any heat at all. They'll, they'll do it right away. And then some ingredients will only come out after you heat the oil. And that tells you something else. It probably tells you that the ingredient that's coming out was, uh, what would the word be for in the cell? Intracell or intercell? Intracellular, intracellular material. Probably you have to heat that up so the cells burst open and stuff come out. But all the intercellular stuff, the stuff that was uh, readily available, comes out much faster and, and probably doesn't need the heat at all. So there's, there's a few different ways you can approach that. Those, those are the suggestions I would have. I think the most useful of those is that you look at a lot of other formulas and see what herbs people are using, especially formulas that you know are, are effective. And if you know those, those uh, formulas are effective, then you can assume that the, the herbal ingredients are. I hope that answered the question. Yes, thank you. For a practical standpoint, too, when you're soaking herbs in oil, heating them is valuable because those herbs will always have some moisture content residual in them between 8 to 10%. And if you don't remove that, you'll run some risk of rancidity in the oil over time. So heating up the oil to water boiling temperature, but not so much that you burn the oil, will help reduce some of that moisture content if you have a cleaner oil extraction. I'll add a little bit of a comment about that. Andy can probably reference the text this comes from, but I've seen it in monasteries where they're making oil extractions. They only use the water, the cook the water. The oil's actually in the center by itself and the water's not heated. It's heated, but there's basically a big pot, a large pot. It's filled with water and then inside that pot is the oil and then inside that oil is the herbs. I'm not sure if you've seen that technique, but that's the technique that's mostly used. There's a second pot. That's what we do. Oh, you do? Okay. Yep. The double boiling. Yeah, double boiling. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you yeah, did that. This is quite a different subject, but we, since we have people um, obviously interested in it, we'll go the next step. So yeah, generally what you do when you make an ointment or something like that is that you heat the herb, you soak the herbs in the oil for a very long time. Then you bring that oil to a boil. So you're not using a double boiler, but you bring it to a boil. Now, there may be somewhere you don't want to do that, and that may be a technique that's used. But all my teachers, the way that they did it was they would heat that, that collection of herbs and oil in, uh, until uh, one of the herbs started to uh, brown on the outside. Now, sometimes you read it and they'll say you want to cook it until all the herbs turn black, which is another option. So it depends on the specific instructions. 
But the other important thing that, that, that your, your comment reminded me of is that after cooking these herbs in this oil, it was very common to do something they would call it chu hua. In the books, they'll just say chu hua. When you're done, they'll say, you know, cook the herbs in the oil, and then it'll say chu hua. Then it'll say add the, at chu hua means to extract the fire. So take out the fire. And the way that the fire is taken out, she took those, that pot that had the, uh, the hot oil in it, and you dip it in a pot in a, that was filled with cold water. And therefore, the fire is drained out of the oil. And then you can warm the oil again. So if you're, going to, if you're going to make it into a plaster and you're going to add beeswax or something, you're just warming it slightly. You're not cooking it to that high heat again. You're just warming it enough to put the uh, beeswax in. So I just want to make that clear. Because so, I thought it was the image you had of that double boiling. The only time I've ever seen that done is when they're doing this chuho, when they're taking the fire out of the, out of the oil, then they dip, it in, they dip the pot with the oil into the pot with the water. That's how they do it. I don't know if that has anything to do with that. But anyway, if you're making whiteness, that's... that's usually recommended. Thank you very much. I've been playing around with it and the thing that I found works best for me anyway so far is time. So I let it sit for a very long time on very low heat. And the reason I don't love to heat it up all the way is because as a product, you know, that you need to sell to people, it has to smell decent. So a lot of people don't like that burnt herby smell. However, I wonder if it would be stronger if it was if it would be done that way. Maybe I can make an extra strong stinky I don't think you want to get a burnt smell. That's generally not recommended, so you don't want to go that far. Uh, usually, what most, many, many of the formulas, they'll tell you to put a little bit of bijer in the formula, and they're just putting a white, one stick of bijer, and they're using that as a thermometer in a sense, and that when the bijer starts to brown, then you're done. Because some of the other herbs, it's hard to tell, uh, but bijer works really well, so we use that as a, as a way of doing it. That's one of the, the tricks they, they use in, the, in that business. Thank you so much for imparting your wisdom. It's like an ancient version of the turkey thermometer. <laughs> Pops when the turkey's done, right? <laughs> Lauren, you look like you had something to say there. Yeah, I unfortunately would be going back to flavor nature herbalism. They don't really have anything to contribute to herb preparation and in the, the creation of gall medicine. But part of my reason for courting you is maybe a little bit to be an advocate for the adoption of this model. And I think one of the criticisms that I've encountered of, say, the Western medical community towards Chinese medicine. Because one thing I always puzzled on in the early years of my practice was, why was acupuncture the thing that became popular? Like, why not herbalism when anybody could potentially understand the mechanism, mechanism of an herb through chemistry and pharmacology? And then I had a conversation with some science-minded person, and their response was because of the variability of the herbs which is that you never know how much of an active ingredient you're getting, which is why Western medicine always opts to try and synthesize something so they can control the amount of an active ingredient at any point. You were kind of touching on that earlier, Michael. And, and so far in this conversation, everybody's been talking about variability, variability, variability. Well, the way that I was taught herbalism, and I'm assuming most people who went through a standard TCM education, was that we learned herbs kind of like pharmaceuticals, which is this herb has these functions, and every time you give this herb at this dose, it has these functions. So which kind of denies the fact that these are living things, which means that depending how they grew, when they were picked, how they were stored, whether there was rain that year or no rain that year, is going to influence its chemistry. So I think the nice thing about Flavor Nature Herbalism is that it takes what looks to be an intrinsic detriment and makes it an asset, or at least gives us the flexibility and versatility to be able to take something that could be more challenging and make the practice of Chinese medicine a more complicated thing and really making it our advantage.
Can you say a little more about how it turned? First of all, I'm with you. Again, the more we understand something within our own experience, the more we can bring to our clinic to helping people. I think that's really true. And keeping in mind and recognizing that we're dealing with living substances. We've already talked about this earlier in this conversation, that there is variability and that we can't get away from it. So we have to embrace it and make that part of what we do, right? Okay, that year, the Baishao, like, meh, like, not great. Okay, so that, that's important to know. And at the same time, you were saying we can take that and make it our advantage. I understand that we can make it to our advantage within our profession and within the way that we work. That makes sense to me. I don't know how that would turn to our advantage when we're trying to deal with the Western community who would be looking at it and going, yeah, see, you proved our point. You can't quality control this stuff and you can't give us standard doses. Oh, I am not an apologist here. I don't care if the Western community really respects us all that much, other than at least right now in the United States, as a result of something like the opioid epidemic, they're finally starting to realize that they don't know what to do. And so they're referring to us by default at this point. And so I think Western medicine recognizing its own limitations is our greatest advantage. I think the more they stop trying to impose their models onto us, the more we can have a more interesting conversation. Which is to say then that I think it's important that we at least keep flavor, nature, herbalism in mind, because what that does is it gives us a direct link back to our medical ancestors. The nice thing about thinking about herbs in this way is that I can go open up a book that was written 500 years ago, look at an herbal prescription and reverse engineer the thought process that that doctor was thinking, because most doctors throughout the 2000 years of Chinese medicine history prior, kind of prior like 1949, basically, were operating under a very similar medical language and framework. And so even if they disagreed on nuanced aspects of a theory, they were all still basically using the same theory, yin-yang theory, wuxing theory, the five flavors to understand herbalism and whatnot. So I think the value is not so much in creating apologia for Western medicine. It's really so that we get access to an, in 2,000 years of history I mean, these doctors left their writings to posterity to help us in situations when we need help helping others. And if we don't understand the way they were thinking, we've effectively cut ourselves off from that repository of knowledge. I just heard you say that you don't care about them, Western community, imposing their models on us. It's like, yeah, thanks, not interested. I'm totally with you on that. One of the things that deeply concerns me, this might be a little provocative, when we in our community impose that model on ourselves. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I will say there is absolutely nothing wrong with utilizing medical science to understand herbal medicine. I think the problem is when we sublate Chinese medicine to Western medicine, which is what I generally see happening with this trend of integrative medicine. Integrative medicine, at least in the way I observe it as it's generally used, means Chinese medicine becomes Western medicine light or becomes Western medicine with Chinese characteristics, to borrow kind of a, a Chinese communist term or turn of phrase. So there is nothing wrong with both models coexisting. I think the problem is that as Westerners, we are going to default to medical science because that's going to be what feels intuitive to us. And so when we get to a point where we're confused or, or don't understand something, we're going to feel more comfortable when an understanding is expressed in biomedical terms. 
But that will ultimately be a disservice if the model that you're trying to utilize evolved with a completely different cultural and linguistic and historical context than Western medicine. So at least what I try to do with my students at the university is to strongly encourage them to compartmentalize their knowledge, like have a Western understanding of medicine, of biology, of physiology and pharmacology, have a Chinese understanding of things, see where they meet, but don't make one dominant over the other, especially if you're letting them bleed into each other. Simon. Yeah, I think in America, I'm not sure. But I can definitely speak from Australian perspective and why it's this kind of trend is happening in Australia. I think it is around what Michael said, us, our profession imposing it on ourselves, us being complacent and listening to the complaints of our patients when we should really be the physicians. So what we're doing is we're allowing the patients to dictate how we want to, how we're prescribing. Patients are saying, I don't like this. It tastes like this. It's not convenient. And we're, we're going, okay, 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 because I want to stay in business because of this, because of that, rather than, excuse me, I'm the doctor, take it. And <laughs> not being rude, but you know, that's why you've come to see me. You've come to seek my professional advice. This is my professional advice. Take it or leave it. And because the proof is really in the pudding. If you're really good at what you do and you're very, very proficient in being a practitioner and a clinician, then you're going to get the patience. You know, you're going to do a good job. But if you compromise, you're going to keep compromising and keep pumping. And then what's going to happen? It's, going to, it's a slippery slope because we're going to just eventually just going to be doing Western medicine very, very quickly. But I find that's one of the problems in Australia. It might be similar in the States. The other problem is the education. So we're not actually getting, you know, if we talk about flavor-based medicine, which we're talking about, we don't get that education. There is no education for how to diagnose flavor. We don't, we don't have that. There's a couple of specialists who do do that. But how, I don't know if you have any education in the States that educates and teaches people how to diagnose based on flavor. Well, the teachers that Lauren and I study with, they specifically teach how to diagnose and use flavor in nature as the primary mode of treatment. And in fact, Julianne's having this year-long intensive uh, immersive course coming up where we go and we taste, I think, at least 100 different substances in a group setting and kind of under her guidance, looking at all of the old Materia Medica to try to understand how they work. So I have not yet taken this class, but I'm incredibly excited to take it. And I've been doing my own experimentations in preparation for it in a formal way, like you don't get your licensure through it, but it is, somebody's doing it. Which is to say that it really only exists in the continuing education sphere. It's not in the universities. It's not a core part of the education. I, now that I teach in one of the universities, I mean, it's some of the students are getting exposed to it, but I don't teach Herbs 101. I supervise in the university clinic. I teach a history course there and I teach a case studies course. So by the time students are getting to me, they're at the end of their education. So then when I'm introducing them to flavor and nature herbalism, they are absolutely bamboozled by the concept. And they're wrestling with trying to rem remember so much information to get through a board exam that trying to then set aside a kind of pharmacological approach to herbalism and adopt a flavor nature approach is like too much for them. I want to jump in on, on this for just a second. I think most of the programs like many programs that have an exam at the end that's going to get you a license, 
aka your learner's permit, it's teaching to the test. There's going to be some kind of a test. There's some kind of a standard. Everybody has to like get to the standard so we can trust you out there to be kind of safe. And then you get to start really learning, right? So a lot of this kind of thing is, let's call it postgraduate, you know, and fair enough, because even in many other types of formal education, you're getting the degree. And then if you want to learn more, okay, that's when you go deep into something that's really interesting to you. So there's that. And the other piece is, and I remember I've taught a few courses, one or two day things, you know, short on, on some of Dr. Huang Huang's stuff. I would tell the students that have still students, like practitioners, like, yeah, have at it. But I remember telling the students, like, look, you're going to learn some things here, but it's not going to help you on the national exam. In fact, don't even think about this on the national exam, because it, it's probably going to take you in a direction that won't help you pass the test. There's a certain thing you have to do to pass the test. It's like we all have to learn those basics. And then after that, especially if we find that we're not getting the best results or we're just curious, yeah, then you can dig into these other traditions. So it's great that uh, Juliana and others are teaching other ways of looking at herbs that can be very, very useful clinically based, but you're not going to get it in school. I mean, it might be helpful if the schools would like point to it and go, this is important. Notice it's in the book. Every herb has a flavor. Don't forget it. Like, see if you can learn it. Five years, it'll be more helpful. One of the challenges then is that we go to school to learn how to treat patients. Every university, before you can graduate, before you can sit for a board, has an internship program. Yes. We do not have a residency program like medical doctors do, which I actually think is a disservice to us because at least medical doctors get to go and then spend three, four years actually treating people in a hospital setting, in a clinical setting to realize that their book education was nothing like what the real world is like. And so I, at least I approach supervising in this university clinic as being a little bit like a residency program. And I tell my students, I'm not here to prepare you for the test. I'm here, I'm here to show you how to treat patients. And so, yes, the way that I, I'll, I'll organize information and the way that I'll say oh, the reason that we're selecting these herbs or, or I'll ask them, what flavor do you think we should use for this patient? is to prepare them for the real world. And like they have like less than a thousand hours to get prepared for the real world until they're thrown out there in $100,000 worth of debt and nobody to ask questions of. So this is going to get really political, but like I think it's kind of a structural problem in our education system in the United States that people are not getting the information necessary to make themselves successful clinicians. That being said also, other supervisors will teach all sorts of things. You have people doing like Mikio Sankey stuff in the university clinics. You have people doing that's esoteric acupuncture stuff. You're getting people doing Master Dong stuff. All this is not part of the TCM curriculum, and yet it shows up in the university clinics under different supervisors anyway, because that's what the supervisors take an interest in. So that is like our one opportunity to like prepare the kids, so to speak, in air quotes, so that they like don't just like crash and burn when they get out. Well said, and. Yes, the great thing about clinic is we get to find out how things are like the book on occasion, usually pretty rare. Like, holy crap, look, textbook example. Everybody come around and look at this. Very rare. So I appreciate your distinction there, Lauren, between there's the things that are helpful for the test, the things that are helpful in becoming a practitioner. And just demark that just so people know. All right. Well, gentlemen. 
we're about at the end of this for now. I'm so delighted that we've actually had an opportunity to have all of us here. This was a little unexpected. I thought we'd just get Simon, but we got a bonus. So just as a way of, of kind of winding this down, I'd like to hear just for a moment or two from each of you, if people are interested in going down this path, taking this exploration, beginning to see how flavor and nature might help to inform their work, what are a few tips for how to begin? Let's start with the person who traveled the furthest to get here. Simon, we'll start with you again. Well, I think, yeah, going back to the foundations really going to set you up well, I think, for anyone learning the flavor, the chi, the signature of herbs. Then you have some sort of context to begin with, and then you have a context of your, your patient and then the context of the environment around you. And, and appreciating that art form, and, and I'm very much a purist and very conservative when it comes to that i feel that the more we dilute the practice it's gonna the more it's going to be diluted and you know there's that fine line between holding strong to traditions and allowing it to adapt in a new environment but i think chinese medicine is not a stranger to that it's always done that and i think that's kind of the, the juxtaposition between why why it is such a beautiful art form because of that phenomena so yeah but I think it's great to have conversations like this, really great to have conversations like this. Definitely the, the, the postgraduate training is definitely out there. And yeah, maybe we need to work towards kind of creating those bridges a bit better between the university standards and, and sort of that other level of education. I think there can be some really, there's some places to, to move there. So yeah, exciting. I think the renaissance of Chinese medicine really is in, in effect at the moment. I think it's, it's still occurring. I feel it really started going strong up to COVID. It really slowed down. From my perspective, it slowed down during COVID, but I think it's going to keep on developing now. I could not agree with you more. And, and, you know, we're using software here that lets us look at each other. And I just saw a whole bunch of heads nod when you said that. So, yeah, the future can be bright. Frank, what about you? What do you have to say? Well, I think one thing I say to students when I'm teaching classes is that learning herbs takes time. And when you're in Herbs 101 or in formulas as a student, it's like when you first meet someone at a party. You get their name, you exchange a funny story, and you move on, you forget about them. You see them at another party, oh yeah, I remember your name, and then you realize you have a friend in common, and you have something else in common, and you get to know them a little bit better. After multiple meetings, you get to know them better, and then you have this other friend that you got to know over time. And then you start, you know what, I'm going to have a dinner party, and I'm going to invite six friends. And who's going to get along? Who's going to be my chief friend there that's going to hold the conversation down? Who's the one that's going to interject a little spice to the conversation? And you develop this dinner party, and that's your herbal formula. And these things take a long time. And this message to students is just don't be in a rush. You know, take your time with the herbs. It's not so intimidating if you just realize this is a 5, 10, 20 year process. You don't have to know it all tomorrow. You don't have to dive in to all these esoteric books. The Materia Medicos have a lot of information. Trying your sources of herbs is really important. One person's extraction is going to taste really different than another person's. One person's raw herb is going to taste really different than another person's. And the quality is really going to vary. I mean, that's why we only use spring wind herbs in our products is because they're hands down the best herbs. They're the cleanest. They're the most beautiful. They're the best tasting. That's what we need to make our stuff as the best starting. 
ingredients. And that's true for every clinician too. If you can be giving your patient tea pills, try them. See what they taste like. See what they feel like. Do those seem like herbs to you? Their extracts are a great thing too. A lot of people use extracts in their clinics. One company's extracts is going to be very different than the next. And the only way to really know that is to taste them and to look at them, to feel them, and to get some experience with that. And that just takes you know a little bit here and there over time. And the last thing I leave students with is don't give up on herbs because it's a lot of people give up. You know, not very many people are doing herbs 10 years into practice. And I would like to see people utilizing it a lot more because it's really good for your patients and it's good for your practice bottom line too. And you can't help patients if you're not a successful acupuncturist. That is a conversation for another day. <laughs> the importance of a good practice. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Andy, what thoughts do you have? This was going to be a discussion about the role of, of flavor, or what I generally call saper in, uh, in Chinese medicine. And I think we've covered a lot of, of interesting things here today. A few things I would recommend to people is that not only do we need to know the saper of the herbs that we're prescribing and to understand what those, how those sapers affect functions, I think that's obviously very important. But we also need to understand the role of saper in, in what made this person sick. Are they eating too many bitter things? Are they eating too many sour things? Are they eating too much species, spicy food? All this kind of thing. So you want to look at flavor as part of the person. We kind of almost got into that discussion when we were talking about the fact that, that we're not a blank, we're not a blank uh, sheet of paper when we taste an herb. It's going into a system. And so the same thing is true of our patients. And so we would use certain sapers to counteract sapers that they may be getting too much of in, in their lives. And the way that the um, society works these days, there'll be an herb or some kind of dietary supplement that becomes very popular for a while, and people will take it for a long time. And they'll find out it really worked great at the beginning, and then after a while it stopped working for them. And that was because they had an imbalance. And when they brought it back to it, when they got to a certain point, then the, yes, then they were balanced. And that herb is not going to help them anymore. In fact, it will probably cause damage. And if you look in the, uh, in the, in the Neijing, they talk about this. You know, too much of one flavor is, is what causes death. Yeah, <laughs> you get all, all one flavor, you're, you're going to be in bad shape. So because it throws, throws the balance. We have to have a balance of all five flavors. And uh, we have a disadvantage. This system, you know, all originated out of the Chinese. And the Chinese, in their cooking and in their eating, they actually use the five flavors. We don't, we don't like bitter things. We don't, we don't include them very much in our, in our cooking. Maybe coffee is an exception for that. We're like a little bit of bitter. But uh, in general, we don't. But the Chinese are very, very particular about that. And, and although I mentioned previously that there's many, many aspects that go into the function of an herb, Without a doubt, the flavor is the most important. Obviously, heavy herbs go down, light herbs go up. You know, there's a lot of flowers and things go to the upper body, and heavy herbs go to the lower body, and seeds are really good for your eyes. And there's all kinds of other, you know, what do we use fruits for? What do we use roots for? Roots are generally supplementing unless they're bitter, in which case they're, then we use them to drain. But so there's all kinds of uh, there's other information, but certainly saper is the most important. And to learn how to balance saper in your own life and in the life of your uh, in the life of your patients is something that if you study it it will be time uh, very well spent i would suspect thanks andy thank you lauren how about you sure the self study method that i would propose that i give this to my students who are really interested in learning this and don't have someone they can learn it from quite yet 
would be there are like a handful of lines in the Huangdi Neijing which give you a sense of what the flavors do. They tell you directly what the flavors do inside the body. So memorize those lines. Get a copy of the Shen Nongben Cao Jing, which there are English language translations. I really like the, the translation that includes Chen Xiuyuan's commentaries because you can see what a Qing Dynasty doctor thought at the same time. Take a look at what those herbs do. Compare the flavor to the actions indicated, and then begin reverse engineering formulas or formula and see why doctors strung these together. And then you'll start to get into the minds of the people who invented these formulae. And you can start to think a little bit like a pre-modern dynastic Chinese doctor. Boris? So everything everyone said is part of what I wanted to say. So I joined their words as well. Uh, however, I wanted to put a little bit of emphasis on what Frank was saying about tasting your tea pills, tasting your granule powders that you have in your clinic. So I used to have a practice up in New York and I have you know limited shelf space because everything's at a premium up there. So I had a, a set of granule formulas and um, I'm sure you guys know botanical biohacking makes these little pills, the microguard formula and armiosan formula. For those who don't know what that first one is, it's like Kangning one. So it's a bunch of aromatic, warming, moving herbs that help with opening up the stomach and food stagnation, things like this. And they're like digestives. So I had a patient who, a quick case study to explain what I'm trying to get at. I had a patient with migraines. She came in, she was overweight, pale, white, like skin color, she was white. No, not like me, but like, like pale white. Kind of cold and clammy to the touch. And, you know, everything about her said cold, damp. And her tongue had a thick white coating. And her chief complaint was migraines. So I thought, okay. I was a young practitioner at the time. She responded very well to gentle acupuncture. I gave her some of this Kangningwan pill to uh, start moving things along because I figured things were stuck in the middle and all this accumulation was causing her headaches. My formula actually made her headaches much worse. So I had to think. I'm like, okay, what's going on? And I also have a limited resources of what herbs I have. She came to me as like a partially pro bono patient, so she, she can't really afford buying a bunch of different things. So I need to be able to modify that those pills that I already gave her. So I have from that same company, the Armiao Sound pills, which is just Sangju and Huangbai. And I had tasted those because I had taken to tasting everything in my pharmacy. And these, even though it had Sangju, which is supposed to be like this aromatic herb, and I was kind of hesitant, the Huangbai there is so profoundly bitter. And when I would taste tea pill, I would have such a clear downward movement in my stomach that I thought, okay, I think maybe this will be able to grab that formula and guide it down so it doesn't bounce back up into her head. Lo and behold, her migraines went away and she was able to take those at a very, very low dose. And she stopped coming to see me after about five visits. I gave her a call after a couple of months. She was doing fine. I was surprised, but I took the win. Point being is taste what you have around because at the very least you'll know how to use what you have on hand. And then as you get better, as you have a bigger practice, as you can afford to invest in like a 365 herbs from the Shandong Bansao and taste those, you can do it. But you can start as small as possible. Taste what you have on hand. Taste what you have on hand. So long as it's not obviously poisonous. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, thank you so much. And our, our special guests who just happen to be here as well. It, this has been a delightful conversation we've touched on not just herbs, but like looking at our medicine, how we think about our medicine, which is, I think, 
always helpful. So thanks to everybody and, and all y'all's listening. Hope that you have found this time helpful. We'll see you again next week. Chinese herbal medicine is so endlessly fascinating. And what's more, capable of helping to shift our patient's physiology in profound ways that allow for a greater sense of well-being to emerge. There's a lot to consider from this conversation today. And even though I air quotes here knew this, it's helpful to be again reminded that the way herbs affect a body and balance is one thing, but it's something else again when the person ingesting the herbs has some kind of a problem. And in fact, a person who's well and in balance could have an adverse reaction to an herb or prescription that would be healing for someone who's ill. It reminds me that for any herb, the answer to the question of, is this a good herb? Is, it depends, as it requires us to first consider for whom and what is their current condition. Do visit the show notes page as we've got some links that will take you further down the path of flavor, taste, and nature. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. 